Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In most episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Visit our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. Thanks for joining us today. I'm John J. Wiley. Joining me is the esteemed Robert Greenberg in studio with you, Jay. Do I have to call you CEO? Please don't. Can I just call you Robert? Please do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Police week is almost upon us. And today's show pretty much is going to be focusing on police week. Also, we'll be talking about local efforts in Miami-Dade what the Metro Police Department is doing, not just locally, but across the United States. Phenomenal Phenomenal program. program. I've never heard about it, and I think our listeners are going to be quite surprised about what they're doing down in Miami-Dade County. I know I was. I've never heard of any law enforcement agency doing this. And also, we'll be talking with Charleston County Sheriff's Deputy Michael Ackerman about his near-death experience and uh, the tragic loss of his partner in a violent situation and what Police Week means to him and other survivors, and also what he does to help other law enforcement officers recover, not not from the physical aspects, but uh, often the, the horrible traumatic um, responses to these horrible violent situations. The mental aspect is uh, always the, the big elephant in the room. Not that I can associate with that type of incident. I have, I've been fortunate in my career, but I know you can, Jay. I have, and uh, I can tell you that for most police, it's a cumulative thing. But I can tell you that before December 7th, 87, I was a different person than I than I am today. And, and that's not all for the bad, not all for the worse. It's, But we'll have Deputy Michael Ackerman talk a stunning interview with him. But first, let's go to the phones and joining us, Dan Farron from the Miami-Dade Metro Police Department. Dan, how are you? Not bad on yourself. I, I'm really, really good. Uh, Robert Greenberg and myself, uh, who's in the studio with me, we're so glad you're here. I was watching Facebook the other day, and a video came on featuring your police director about Project Hero, and I was so moved by what you guys are doing. I said, we got to get these cats on the air for an interview. Tell us what Project Hero is all about. Well, Project Hero started back in uh, May of 2011. Uh, basically, the Police Officer Assistance Trust initiated this project. It's called uh, Honoring Every Resting Officer. And uh, this goes back to our director at the time, uh, James Loftus, uh, happened to see something on TV. And I think it was somewhere, possibly in Arizona or somewhere in the West Coast, where a group of people, a group of kids, really, uh, they found out in, in their town, uh, veterans that uh, died uh, while serving this country. And they would go out and find out who they were and go to their gravesite and put out a, a flag uh, for Memorial Day. So he thought it would be a great idea to initiate that here uh, in our county. And um, at the time, our, our director now, this is Juan Perez, um, was working on their loftus, and he got tasked with that uh, initiative. And uh, it, was, it was very hard a task because it goes back to 1895 that they found out exactly all the officers uh, and the arresting places. And uh, basically what we do in the month of May, which is basically uh, a memorial for police officers, uh, honoring them, we go out to uh, their grave sites and put uh, an American flag and also a thin blue line flag 
to let them know that uh, we, we don't forget the sacrifice that they did for our county. This is for every officer across the United States that served in Miami-Dade Police Department. Correct. They serve in Miami-Dade Police Department. We even have uh, two officers that are uh, buried over in uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, basically, we have officers in that area that help us out, and they go and put a flag, American flag, and also a thin blue line flag, also in memoriam for them for what the sacrifice that they did also. How much manpower did it take to, to trace the locations of all of these resting officers, and how long? Uh, well, you know, it, it, uh, it was a task that... Um, Obviously, um, our director now, Juan Perez, together with uh, a group of people that were with him, it took a while. Uh, it wasn't easy. He even himself, he said that uh, he felt that at one point that it wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to be able to succeed with it. But uh, through that whole entire task, he was able to finish, succeed, get all the, the places where, uh, you know, the resting places of, of our officers and finish that task. I think that is just phenomenal. What a phenomenal and, program, Dan. Is anybody else? I haven't. I'm still on the job. I've got 30 years on. I've never heard of a program like this. Yes, yes. It's it's a great program that they did. It's uh, it's it's basically it's it's a memoriam for our officers. Um, you know, and then what we also have is you know not everybody will be able to pass by through the grave sites and be able to ask questions. So we actually have right under the American flag in front of our police uh, stations, we also have the thin blue line flying during the month of May. So uh, hopefully, you know, people that come to do business here uh, at our offices or at our stations, they might see that flag and might ask exactly what's what's that for. And we can explain to them that it's basically honoring uh, our arresting officers. If any other agencies across the United States, like hint, hint, the Baltimore Police Department would like to hint, hint, do the same thing, uh, can they contact you guys and find out what you did, maybe get some direction and uh, suggestions? Oh, absolutely. You know, this is uh, our police department is always willing to help out other police departments uh, initiate. We're, we're always uh, even taking other information from other departments to see what can better our department as well. So either way, we're always willing to help out other police departments as well. This touches me. that You guys would go to this effort because so many of these people, once they're retired and gone, they're forgotten. You know, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing you've done. And I'm sure Robert Greenberg feels the same way. I do, Dan. Keep up the great work. And uh, I got to say kudos to Director Perez for keeping this tradition going. Yeah. And please do me a big favor. Pass the word down to the uh, our brothers and sisters on the job down there in Miami-Dade that we appreciate everything they do, their service and sacrifice, and thank you so very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you very much for having us here and being able to spread this, this good word out to other people as well. Joining us from Charleston, South Carolina, from Charleston County Sheriff's Office, Deputy Michael Ackerman. Michael, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us today on Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. I understand you are a trainer, and you've got us on speakerphone, so you have a class full of trainees in the background listening? I do. I have a group of trainees that are waiting to go to the academy listening in on the radio cast. And, and what's the approximate ages of these youngsters? I, I, I can say youngsters because I'm an old geezer. Uh, I'm pretty old, too, you know. Uh, they're all in their early 20s. Oh, my goodness. They have no idea. <laughs> What's the start date, Mike? Well, they've started. We've hired them. Uh, I've got three that are going to the academy this Sunday, and then I've got another group from another agency that aren't going to the academy until August. 
Well, tell them we said welcome to the family. And, you know, I, I love being a police. I loved it. I, I still, even though I've been retired many years now, I got retired young, I still love every aspect of it. And my favorite people in the entire world are law enforcement officers across the United States. I, the best people I've ever met, without a doubt. Well, I agree with you 100%. So you are an active duty deputy sheriff, and you're now, how long have you been doing the training or training division? I'm assigned as the field training coordinator for the sheriff's office. I've been in this position now for officially for probably just over a year now. And before that, you were what we call patrol? Yes, I had worked on patrol previous to that um, for with the sheriff's office since October of 2010. And previous to that, I worked for a different agency in South Carolina and started my career out west in Arizona in 2004. So you've seen many, many different aspects of law enforcement in various parts of the United States. Yes. And you love being a law enforcement officer, I take it. Absolutely. It's a calling. That's what I tell all my new recruits. Now, one of the things, and and I I don't know how to say this in a way that's uh, that's any other way than abrupt, is you went through what's got to be every police officer's nightmare a few years ago. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, uh, it was September 8, 2014. Um, I was a part of a, a group of deputies that had responded to assist two of our off-duty deputies with a subject who was creating a disturbance in an apartment complex. And we were basically just going to place them under arrest for some minor misdemeanors here in the state of South Carolina. And when we opened his door and identified ourselves as law enforcement officers, he opened fire from inside the apartment. He struck and killed my partner. Um, He hit me below my right knee and ended up, um, I ended up uh, killing him uh, in the ensuing gun battle. What was your partner's name, Michael? Uh, Joe Matiskovic. And how long was he uh, on the job? He had been on the job for a long time. He actually started with the city of Charleston Police Department and actually rose to the rank of sergeant uh, with them and was a field training officer with them. And um, he had just come over to the sheriff's office. He had been with us at that point. I think he was going on two, almost three years at that point. That sounds like such a a horrific, and there's no words to describe how ugly and how violent these situations are when they occur. I I don't even try. And I'm sure you've been asked to say what it was like. Are you able to put the words how sudden and abrupt and vicious that that whole attack was? You know, um, one of the things we talk about in law enforcement is uh, what occurs to you physiologically and mentally when you go through a traumatic event. And one of the things that does happen to you is what we call, you know, time distortion probably, I don't know the exact amount of time that occurred, um, how long this thing lasted, uh, but I can tell you from looking at our CAD notes and uh, and radio calls that probably there were two rounds of volleys that were fired. Probably the first round was only like 12 seconds. The second round was maybe 10 seconds. The total amount of time from the moment we opened the door until... I was on the back of an ambulance was between seven and nine minutes. And it probably uh, felt like an eternity, I'll imagine. It, it felt like forever. And we had, 
we had backup on the scene as soon as the last shot rang out, and that was less than two minutes, and it felt like an eternity. And and you were severely injured. Your partner was killed. Does he uh, die on the scene, or was he in a hospital for a while going through treatment? Uh, no. Uh, unfortunately, the first round the suspect fired uh, killed my partner. Uh, he was hit multiple times. Um, fortunately, um, he didn't feel any pain. That's the one comfort that I, that we can take from that. Right. He, he at least didn't feel any pain. And your injuries were extensive. I got shot. The, the suspect had an AK-47 with 7.62 millimeter. That's round. a massive round. It put a, um, it actually put a hole in my fibula, uh, just below my right knee. Um, the actual injury, the interesting thing from all this is the actual direct injury itself healed. It was all the secondary injuries that have taken the longest. Um, I developed nerve damage in my right arm because when I tried to move out of the way after being shot, I collapsed down onto the cement, slamming my right elbow down onto the cement, which caused some major nerve damage in my right hand. And then with my leg being in a full cast from my hip down to my toes for nine weeks and then not being able to bend my leg for an additional three weeks after that, I developed significant problems with my right knee that are mm-hmm. going to be, you know, for life. But the actual hole in the fibula has healed up. That was the, that was the easy part of the injuries. Yeah. And the, and the end of it. And how was the whole process for you of dealing with the emotional and a mental aftermath of this trauma? Uh, it's been horrendous. I can't even describe that. It's easier for me to talk about the incident itself than to discuss, uh, put into words, how difficult it is afterwards. Um, I've talked at length about um, how difficult it is to recover um, from, from any kind of critical incident or traumatic event. Um, the emotional and physical toll that it takes on you is just tremendous. I didn't, for the first three months from September 8th until after November, I didn't sleep. Uh, I'm, I remember um, those days and those nights well. Mm-hmm. You know, three months of no sleeping and um, depression set in. Um, I contemplated suicide twice, actually pulled out my service weapon. Um, you know, it, was, it got to be a pretty dark time uh, during those few months. There was a lot of second guessing going on in my head, a lot of guilt, mm-hmm. a lot of a sense of helplessness. Um, it was just it was it was just a tremendously dark time in my life. Um, luckily, I realized that I needed some help, and I went out and I sought that help. Found a wonderful psychiatrist who specializes in traumatic uh, events with uh, first responders. He, along with many people who supported me along the way, helped kind of pull me back from the edge. And that's why I really am here today. That's so good that you found the help you needed and and have gotten a a happier, better life. And it sounds to me like the department is supporting you, which is not always the case throughout the United States. You're absolutely right. I've had the the honor of uh, telling my story um, across uh, South Carolina, and I've actually spoken at um, a national level conference, and I've talked to officers from big and small departments. And the fact that my sheriff, Sheriff Cannon with Charleston County, the fact that he has been so supportive of my recovery and supportive of me is unfortunately 
an exception to the norm in our business. And it's very disheartening to talk to other officers who have been through similar situations to find out that they can't even admit that they need help because they'll get fired if they do. Yes. And then certainly to have your sheriff allow you to come on with us and talk about it is another example of something that never happens. Never happens. Everybody, most of our guests, for fear of some of the things that you discussed, are retired. Right. Just for the repercussions, uh, the department rules and regulations. So, again, I, I want to extend our best wishes to Sheriff Cannon and uh, for allowing you to come on and, and talk about this incident. Well, you know, Sheriff Cannon, one thing about him and why, why I feel so fortunate to work for him, one of the blessings from this incident, if, there, if you can say that there is a blessing, is I've gotten to know him on a more personal level. And one thing I can tell you without a doubt about Sheriff Cannon is he feels, because he has, I don't know if he'll get get mad at me for telling you, but he's got two he's got two kids himself that are in law enforcement. But he doesn't see us as employees. He sees us as his kids. Mm. He's a father figure to us. And when one of us gets hurt, it hurt it hurts him. I know that when this incident occurred, it was such a tragic event. It didn't just hurt him as a sheriff. It hurt him as if one of his own kids had been killed and injured michael you had mentioned to me that uh sheriff cannon's one of the largest uh i'm sorry the longest serving sheriff in south carolina is this the first officer that killed in the line of duty at the sheriff's office no unfortunately we've had others prior to my incident we had had a constable he didn't really kind of he didn't work for us we have state constables here that assist our magistrates, and they sometimes assist local agencies. But we had a state constable who worked very closely with the sheriff's office who was brutally murdered. Um, His body was put in the trunk of a vehicle. And, I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible incident. That was about now, I want to say, about 10 years ago now, um, right around that time frame. And then previous to that, we had two pilots go down in an aircraft uh, malfunction crash, and we had had in the 80s, we had a deputy shot and killed on a traffic stop. Um, so we've had some line of duty deaths, but this was the first time in recent years uh, that we had something like this so dynamic happen. And, you know, even for me, after all these years, I'm not associated with your agency. I, I, I've never met you. This hits me emotionally because of all the line of duty deaths in Baltimore that I started getting upset just hearing you replay those those incidents. It, no matter how matter of fact we do it, it still tugs at those old memories. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask about, we have Police Week coming up very, very soon. Before coming back down to South Florida, I was working at a classic rock radio station in Maryland, and I had put off for about 15 years going to National Law Enforcement Memorial, The Wall, and I finally went with my wife, because I've got a good friend on there and a, a lot of co-workers in the Baltimore Police Department on there, and that day shook me right to my core. Uh, emotionally, uh, the word I'm looking for is, uh, it was like I was gutted. And all this stuff that I've been holding in for so long uh, was coming out and really couldn't 
just had to let it go with the flow, you know what I mean? But I've never made it to a police week. Have you been to that yet? Yes, we went. Um, actually, uh, again, it just tells you how much our sheriff uh, supports us and um, Joe's family. In 2015, when Joe's name was being added to the wall, we sent a very large contingent of deputies to Washington, D.C., um, and I was part of that contingent to support uh, Joe's family and to also honor Joe during police week. It was the most incredible experience. Like you, I had never gone to police week. I had been to the wall once before. I have lost two other friends in the line of duty, one to a SWAT training accident, another to suicide. The one who had died in the SWAT training accident is on the wall, and I had gone once before with my daughter when she was very young, and we had visited the wall to pay our respects to my former supervisor from uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, to the wall. But we had, I had never been to Police Week, so this was just a tremendous experience. And when you go to Police Week, what does it mean to you, being what you've been through and having the loss of your partner and friend and, and the catastrophic injuries you went through, what does the whole experience mean to a guy like you? Well, I think, you know, to, to anyone who has been connected to someone who has lost their life in the line of duty, whether it be a partner or whether it be a family member, going to something like that and seeing the amount of support from all over the nation, number one, it's awe-inspiring, you know, to be there for Joe's parents, but we weren't the only ones there for Joe's parents. I mean, there were literally thousands and thousands of law enforcement officers there. And even though all of us were there because we were there to honor one specific person who may have, that we may have lost in our agency, we were also there supporting everyone else that was there from all over the nation. I mean, there's people there from all over the world. I got to speak to people from London, Italy, Spain, Australia, and the camaraderie from these officers from all over for us to come together. Because I don't know if people understand, but we're the only nation that has a memorial such as this for fallen law enforcement officers. And we're the only nation that does something like Police Week for our fallen officers. So, you know, you talk to these officers from other countries and it just really brings into perspective the enormity of the entire week. I did not know that we're the only nation that does this. I didn't this. either. Thanks for sharing mm-hmm. with that that with us, Michael. Appreciate that. That that is an amazing fact. It's not even something you can see on the uh, Police Week website. In no, fact, I, I had no idea. When you talk to these other law enforcement agencies or like trainees, what do you leave with them as far as? Um, surviving catastrophic violent situations? What's the takeaway? Well, there's two separate parts of it. I mean, first, there's surviving the incident itself. That's one thing I talk about in my training is we receive a lot of training about this stuff. Right. You know, how how many times have we been told on the firing range, you know, that all this stuff's going to happen, audio exclusion, you're going to have time distortion. Tunnel vision, the whole nine yards. All that stuff. I mean, it's all reality. We talk about muscle memory how important it is to develop muscle memory. You know, one thing that I try to impart on people is I have a saying with all my trainees, you're going to practice like you play and you play like you practice. And if you 
don't take training seriously or you just kind of half, you know, do it, then when the crap hits the fan, that's how you're going to respond. And I try to impart on them that if they think they're going to do something magnificent that they've never trained to do, when that situation comes upon them, it's not going to happen. You know, I talk about the fact that I don't remember drawing my weapon from my holster. I don't to this day. That was all done from muscle memory, from practicing drawing my weapon from the holster. However, I made a very large tactical error when he first started opening fire. And that was, you know, how do most officers train on the firing line? Square up to the bad guy. Square up. Yeah. Get a good stance. Stand there. Shoot at a paper target. Well, that's exactly what I did. When I didn't, when I was going strictly on my training in the fight freezer flight mode, I got there. I squared up as rounds are coming at me. I didn't die for cover. I didn't do anything. Because that's how I train. Stand there and shoot at a paper target. And that's what I did. Michael, thank you so much for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. I've been preaching this for years. Well, it wasn't. And what I tell people is it was about five seconds. I'm not sure if that's the exact timeline, but it was about five seconds went by. And this was after I had already taken a round into the leg that I finally thought to myself that I could get a conscious thought in was, hey, I need to get get out the way. And, you know, by that time, Joe was already dead. I already took a round to the leg. And, you know, a lot happens in just a couple of seconds. And people don't realize that. You're operating on autopilot. Your, your body starts doing those things that you can't control. You know, your blood rushes to your major organs. You lose your fine motor skills. Your brain starts going a million miles a second. If I had to think about pulling my weapon out, I would have never gotten it out of the holster. Have they made training changes since your incident? A little, uh, some. We're just like every other department. We're shorthanded and underbudgeted. Yeah. As we all know, when when that stuff happens, we all know what first takes a hit. Exactly. It's always the training department that you know takes the hit. But we do the very best we can. We have instituted some moving and shooting stuff, but you know, still, as far as our annual qualifications go, standing at a paper target. And and that's what you're required to do. I mean, I I get it. That's what we had to do too. And and the real life situation on the street is nothing like that. When it when it really hits the fan, for me, I was like, there's a moment of, I can't believe this is happening. You know, it's not really cognitive thought. It's like this isn't supposed to be happening. Right. I call it the oh, you know what moment. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, you really have no idea what you're going to say, what you're going to think, what you're going to do. You might scream. You might make all kinds of weird noises, but you're going to react on your training. That's what you're going to do. Exactly. And, you know, that's that's funny you bring that up because those people who've been through something like that, they know we can sit there all day long and practice and train and you know, some of these young kids nowadays go, man, if that was me, I'd be doing this, this, and this. Yeah. But the truth is you don't know until that incident occurs what you're going to do. You can hope and pray that your training takes over and you do the right thing. But, I mean, there were five other deputies on that scene, and all five of us responded differently. Right. And, you know, it has to do with our training. It has to do with our backgrounds. It has to do – and that initial response you can't control and that initial response could be a few seconds it could be a couple minutes depending on you know you and 
a situation itself. So I do, I do spend a lot of time talking about that in my uh, presentation. Um, the second part I do talk about in the presentation is surviving what it's going to happen afterwards. Cause that's where we don't get any training, right? Right. We don't get any training as to what's going to occur after a critical incident like that. Are you going to fall yeah. into the category of most people that we've spoken to that tell me that the second part that you're getting into right now is more difficult than the first? Absolutely. Absolutely. Being an injured officer, whether you are physically injured, mentally injured, or both, the recovery part is the most difficult because you're dealing with so many different things depending on the incident and depending on yourself. You're, de- you're dealing with the internal stressors of your emotions and your, your mental stress, the things that you can't control. And then you've got the external stressors of day-to-day life that come on top of that. You know, bills still have to be paid and rent still due and mortgages due and, you know, the stresses of a relationship or parenthood or, I mean, all the things that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, you have to deal with that on top of dealing with whatever the incident was and the recovery from that incident. And it's a, a slow, slow process. And I'd probably say it's ongoing. You're, you're probably not there yet. You're a lot better than you used to be, if you're like me. You're a lot better than what I used to be, but still not where I want to be yet. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I ever will be. It's sort of, it's almost like being uh, a recovering addict. Uh-huh. You know, you're always a recovering addict. I'm always going to have this in me. And just like you, if you've got those incidents in you, they're always going to be a part of you. And they have changed you into whomever it is that you are after that incident. I, I don't know if there will ever be a point that I'll ever be necessarily where I want to be because where I want to be is where I was before the incident. I would like and that that's too. that's never going to happen again. Right. Yeah. So, I think the important thing uh, that I get out of what you're saying, Michael, is is that you've come to that realization. And I think that in itself is a great pathway to at least healing the best you can. Absolutely. One of the reasons why I'm so open and talking about all the struggles is because the only way that I've gotten to where I am today is with the help of professionals, with the help of a, a group of core people around me that have supported me openly, uh, the help of my sheriff, I mean, the help even of the community. All that stuff is uh, treatment to assist me to really get to where I am today. And to be able to get out and seek that treatment and get that treatment, you know, is why I'm here. And I want others to be able to feel comfortable in seeking that treatment. And I know we still have a lot of challenges, some of which we've already talked about, that our first responders can get that treatment and that help. But the first part is just being comfortable and talking about it. And that's a huge thing. One of the biggest things is letting people help you. That's not easy to do from people in our line of work. So it's, it's a conscious decision that I have to do all the time. I'm sure you do as well. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the first, one of the hardest things I, you know, while I was on light duty, um, just like a lot of law enforcement officers, I know y'all, your listeners will find this hard to believe, but I don't get paid a lot of money. (laughs) And, you know, I learned a hard lesson. You know, I was living a little bit beyond my means and I was depending on overtime and off duty kind of things, uh, to assist me a little bit. And all that was gone. You're on like, like duty, you're on a fixed income. Right. It changes. And so I was too proud to ask for help. 
And people were asking, what, you know, do you need help? Do you need help? I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And finally it got to the point where I was about to go homeless because I didn't have enough money to pay rent. And then I finally reached out just out of desperation. And there were so many people who were like, why didn't you tell us? You know, why didn't you? I was like, because I didn't want to ask for help. I'm a cop, you know, I'm the one that comes and helps you. I shouldn't ask for help. I should be able to figure it out on my own. Exactly. And overcoming that was very difficult. That was a hard pill to swallow. But what I've learned is it's not weak to seek help. Absolutely not. You're not weak. I want to thank you so very, very much for for candidly, openly sharing about the incident, your injuries, your recovery, uh, the loss of your partner and friend. And uh, also, if there's other agencies that are looking for what you have to offer, is there a way they can reach out to you? Absolutely, they can reach out. The, The presentation that I've developed can be tailored as far as time. The full presentation is a four hour presentation. I've done two-hour presentations, one-hour presentations, whatever the need may be. Uh, I don't charge for it. The sheriff is very supportive of it. All I have to do is get permission from the sheriff to be able to come. Uh, The only cost that might be incurred is uh, travel expenses. But other than that, I don't charge to come and speak. I'll speak to a group of five. I'll speak to a group of 100. And if anybody's interested, um, they can reach me um, via email at my email address is M as in Michael Ackerman, A C K E R M A N at Charleston County, all one word, dot org. M Ackerman at Charleston County dot org. And if they contact me, we can uh, get things set up and I'd be happy to come speak anywhere. On a footnote to that, Michael, off the air, I know we had had a pretty extensive conversation and you had mentioned that if any of our brothers or sisters just wanted to talk to you or needed some help that you wanted me to make sure that they were aware that you were there for them and that they can also contact you about their individual problems, their trials and tribulations of what they're going through. Absolutely. One of the, one of the most um, dangerous things uh, when going through a, a traumatic event or critical incident is this belief that you're alone or that nobody understands or you'll be judged. And I don't want anybody out there to ever feel that way. They can definitely contact me uh, via email and I will get in touch with them. I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, to anyone who might just need someone to talk to. I'm not a therapist. All I am is just someone who's been there and, and let you know that you know, you're not alone in what you're going through and that you're normal. That's the other thing that we forget sometimes is these reactions that we have to traumatic or critical incidents, they're not unusual, they're normal, we're human beings. And those reactions are very normal reactions to those kind of incidents. And uh, if anybody ever needs someone to talk to or just listen to, to listen to them, um, I'm always, I'll always make myself available. Deputy Michael Ackerman, Charleston County Sheriff's Office, thank you so very much for your time and, uh, and your candor. Appreciate it. Thank you all very much. And I, re- I really do appreciate the opportunity coming on and speaking to you guys. Robert, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm blown away by the candor, the openness, 
the frankness and the honest conversation with Deputy Michael Ackerman and, and what he does, and also he does to help other officers across the United States. Phenomenal. He's to be commended, and 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 you know what? He did a great job of Jay. He humanized the badge that you and I wear. Yeah, and, and people don't hear that. And we all say all too often, especially like with the Wounded Officer Initiative, when, when someone is severely injured, they're forgotten. And the news reports that they'll survive, and that's never mentioned again. And people don't hear about the struggles and rebuilding their lives right. physically, mentally, and the toll it takes. And it's great that he reaches out and tries to carry those lessons to help in training new officers and helping experienced officers. It's phenomenal. And I know, like you, I'm absolutely blown away by what Miami-Dade Metro Police Department is doing with their Project Hero. Phenomenal program. I, I hope uh, other agencies are listening and they give Miami-Dade a call and uh, start start one in their agency as well. So in this month of May, to encapsulate what they're doing, to paraphrase, every officer that served in the Miami-Dade Police Department since its inception, they post a American flag and a thin blue line flag at their gravesite, no matter where they are in the United States. That just blows me away that that effort is phenomenal, what they did. I want to thank Deputy Dan Farron and also Police Director Juan Perez. What a phenomenal job they're doing. Uh, And that wraps up this show. Went by so fast. It was uh, another great show, and I want to thank you, Jay. Another great job by you. Thank you very much. On behalf of Robert Greenberg and myself, I want to thank you so very much. Until next time. See ya. Yeah, you got it. Thank you.